Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. How are you on the seas, Samantha? Well, not surprising. I get really sick. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So, not great. Motion sickness is not my friend. However, I do love looking at the ocean and the endless waters. I'm also petrified of dark waters where I can't see the bottom. So, there's that. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I feel that way too. I feel like, I, I know there's a specific fear, like phobia word for this, but when I look out and all I see is water, that makes me panic. Like if I'm swimming in it. Right. And it's oh, yeah, just no. water. <laughs> yeah, that does make me nervous. And I used to have a, I guess I still do this, but it doesn't matter because I can't go anywhere. But for the start of every summer, I would watch Jaws. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I did that from like as a kid, which I, that just shows how much I love fear because I'd be right. like, this is going to really mess with me when I'm in the water. This is and it awesome. did. <laughs> so I would go tubing with my dad, who was a real wild boat driver, and he had this move called the figure eight. Oh, no. And then he would slingshot you through it. The slingshot is the worst, and the rope would go, it would just go slack. You're like, oh, well, I'm going to fall off. And so I would fall off, and I would think, this is it. The shark is going to get me. I got to climb up on the tube as quickly as possible, as if the tube is going to help me, as Jaws 2 showed me. Not true. It's true. Infamous scene. Oh, gosh, that, that scene scared me so badly. Although I've kind of deviated from my original question, <laughs> which is, I feel like I, I don't, I get seasick sometimes. Like if the, if I can't see outside and the boat is rocking a lot, that will mm-hmm. get me seasick. So I don't think I would have necessarily been a great explorer back in the day. Mm-mm. Oh, no, I couldn't have made it. We wouldn't have cut it. <laughs> oh, no. Uh-uh. Just toss me overboard. It's fine. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, there's a lot you had to deal with back then, like scurvy. Right. Oh, my goodness. Well, we wanted to bring back this classic episode because we recently did our, our episode on women and pirates. Yes. So, yes, yes. Please enjoy this classic on women explorers. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. Or should I say, Caroline, ahoy. Ahoy, matey. Ahoy, mateys. Yes, we are talking about women explorers on the high seas. Because in our summer series on women and exploration, we've talked about overland explorers, and Antarctic explorers, and now it's time to explore the parts of the globe that knit all of these excursions together, the seas. That's right. A lot of cross-dressing on the ocean. That's right, because women weren't allowed on big boats for a long time. They were not. Women and our lady parts were considered bad luck for ships and sailors. That's right, Uh, along with priests, pigs, flowers, and leaving harbor on a Friday... Women aboard ships for a long time were considered unlucky, probably because of the whole thing about distracting sailors who would then think of sex instead of thinking of, you know, sextants. Right, because men only think about sex when women are around. Yeah. Well, but you know where women were welcome? 
naked on the the carvings of the ships. That's right, because the ocean, while the sailors shouldn't look at or even think about women ever because it's bad luck and et cetera, et cetera, the ocean itself needs to see naked women and hence the carvings of like topless mermaids. And well, I guess, well, I don't know. Would you say a mermaid is just naked? I mean, I guess she couldn't wear bottoms. That's true. Topless. We would call them topless mermaids. Topless mermaids. Yeah, that's why you see them so commonly on ships, because they're sort of offerings to the seas, which all of it doesn't make a whole ton of sense. But then again, we're talking about superstitions. (laughs) Um, But then early in the 1700s, speaking of cross-dressing, we start to see some daring seafaring women like Mary Ann Talbot and Bonnie, and Mary Reed, who, in in various ports of call, disguise themselves as men in order to join the ship's crews. Yeah, and Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed both hooked up with pirates, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was, was it Anne Reed? One of them ended up marrying the pirate known as Calico Jack. Oh, yeah, that was Anne Bonnie. Yeah. Yeah, so they're, they're a happy pirate family and, until they weren't, you know, and their, their ship was caught and then they were imprisoned and then the men were hanged. And there's all sorts of legends about maybe what happened to, uh, Anne and Mary, but nobody really knows for sure. Yeah, well, and maybe we should do an episode on women and piracy. Ooh. As in sea piracy, not internet piracy. <laughs> but then when we move into the 1800s, you start to see more commonly the wives of, say, military officers, merchants, and whaling captains joining their husbands on board more often. Yeah, and these actually became known as hen frigates. Yeah, if you had a ship with women on board, I think all you needed was one woman to constitute a hen frigate. Yeah, I feel like that's making a big deal out of nothing. It re- also reminds me of how bachelorette parties in the UK oh, are yeah. called hen parties. Yeah. Just ladies a cluckin'. Interesting. I wonder if women are called hens in other capacities. I mean, I, I guess they are, but I wonder if it's supposed to be derogatory. In the same way as chicks? Chicks, or maybe. We have, we're hitting on so many other potential podcast topics we can get into. Let's just stop and go research right now. But anyway, so, so Marianne Talbot, Anne Bonnie, and Mary Reed were all pretty impressive, tough women. They were obviously pretty tough to dress as men, hang out with these like big, burly, scary pirate people. Obviously they were tough, but they were not as tough as the first woman who circumnavigated the globe, who really only recently we found out about. Yeah, we're talking about a French woman named Jean Beret, who once she completed the trip, it was known that she was a woman, that she had done this. She actually ended up receiving a commission from the French Navy. But it seems like her story has only been told in more recent years. She was sort of lost to the history books, but her story is fascinating. Yeah, Glennis Ridley, you just wrote a book about her called The Discovery of Jean Beret. And yeah, her life story is pretty incredible. So she was born to peasants in France in 1740. And I just, as I'm reading her life story, I'm picturing the peasants from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you know, like, oh, I would be an oppressed. Um, 
Anyway, she became an herb woman, and this is basically part of a feminine tradition surrounding the medicinal properties of plants and the emerging field of taxonomy, which aimed to name and classify the natural world. So basically, Beret was part of this oral tradition because it's not like they could read and they were at the library studying all these plants. It was an oral tradition where these families trained each other on how to identify plants and their healing properties. Well, and it's notable, too, that being an herb woman in particular was considered this feminine folkloric art because it sort of ties into what we were talking about in our Overland Explorers podcast about how a lot of the wealthier Victorian women who went on all these explorations did so as botanists Mm -hmm. because similar to the whole herb woman thing, you have botany at the time being the one approved science for women to be interested in because Ladies love flowers. That's right. I love flowers. I don't know what any of the names are, but I love them. Anyway, so yeah, botany during this time was an emerging field. So basically, what does that mean? Like herb woman versus botanist? You have the professionalization of the field, which means that more men are getting into it while women are considered like improper. They're, you know, it's not appropriate for them to study it. So anyway, Beret is out, out in the field one day looking at some flowers and she ends up meeting botanist Philibert Commerson. They, they, I guess they, they end up talking quite a bit, getting to know each other and talking about flowers and the birds and the bees and whatnot. And of course, you know, they, they grow to like each other quite a bit. Yeah. And at first it seems as though Commerson takes on Jean Beret as a student of his, but as Glennis Ridley talks about in her book, she thinks that it's actually likelier that Commerson ended up working with Beret because she had things to teach him about all of the herbal knowledge that she had cultivated mm. through the, this kind of folkloric medicine that uh, she practiced. That's right. And so... Uh, basically, Commerson was going to go on this journey to identify plants and whatnot, et cetera, et cetera. He needed an assistant to go with him. And who better to go than Jean Beret? But the thing is, she's a lady. She can't go. Yeah, she can't go because at the time, the French Royal Navy completely forbade women on ships. And this journey took place from 1766 to 1769. And so Commerson said, oh, what are we going to do? I love you. You know so much about plants. I want you on the <laughs> ship. Hey, here we go. Uh, why don't we just dress you up like a man? Put on man's clothes, bind your breasts, deepen your voice, and voila. Right. And so she ends up getting to accompany him in this disguise, dressed as a man, on this journey, which was led by French explorer Louis-Antoine de Bougainville. And if that sounds familiar, it should, because while they were in Brazil, they discovered a certain type of plant, which they then named for the explorer Bougainvillea. Yeah, and it's thought that it was Beret who discovered this now famous plant species, but then the story takes a tragic turn because it's it's not terribly surprising that on this three-year jaunt, at some point the crew started to suspect that Jean Beret was not in fact a man. And she was found out. And there are a lot of conflicting stories about how her outing happens. But what Glennis Ridley thinks happens, comparing all of these different primary sources that she used to research her book, 
She thinks that Beret was actually gang raped by the crew after she was outed at one point. And soon after that, Bougainvillea, actually in 1768, leaves Beret, who is then pregnant at that point, possibly due to the gang rape, in the French colony of Mauritius, where she then had the baby, gave it up for adoption, and then Philibert dies. Like, rough time. Yeah. Jeez. But Jean does not give up. She certainly didn't. She remarried and went back to France in 1774, 75 about. She ends up receiving a pension from the French Navy, which is pretty shocking considering the time she was living in, the fact that she was a woman and she wasn't even supposed to be on that ship. But they they ended up basically compensating her for her time that she spent looking at plants and identifying plants and and working on this ship. Yeah, and they knew by that point, obviously, that she was not a he. And Ridley thinks that maybe this was due to an affair with Bougainvillea, that she received this pension. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, there was this prince aboard the ship at one point who was sailing with them. And in his diary... He wrote about Jean Beret, quote, she dared to confront the stress, the dangers and everything that happened that one could realistically expect on such a voyage. Her adventure should, I think, be included in the history of famous women. How nice. So that's what we're doing. Yeah, we're doing our part. But I but I I love that, that that somebody of his stature would write something like that. But talk about going to great lengths to explore. I mean, putting herself in. I mean, direct danger. That's right. Now, I want to see a movie about this. Yeah, that's what I want to see next. But it would take a while for other women to end up making and breaking records of their own on the high seas. Yeah, we're now going to leap forward in time to the 20th century, which is when we start seeing other women Uh, I mean, there have certainly been other women in the meantime who had sailed around the globe. But once we get into the 20th century, that's when we have a lot of races of women trying to go around the world on their own or sail across specific oceans. And so you start out in 1952 with Ann Davison, who becomes the first woman to sail across the Atlantic Alone. Yeah, and her story of what really drove her was was pretty interesting as well. In the 1930s, she actually learned how to fly, which is how she met her future husband, Frank. And after World War II, the couple took up sailing with plans to sail to the West Indies to start a new life. But soon after embarking in 1949, a storm hit, the boat capsized, and Frank died. So... And to sort of continue their their goal, to reach their goal, she sets off in May of 1952 across the Atlantic alone. And it was not easy. No. Uh, apparently, she maintained a steady diet of benzedrine and rum to keep on keeping on because it was such an arduous journey. But she made it and she broke this record and now has a place in the history books. And and then in 1969, you have a similar story, actually, with Sharon Seitz Adams becoming the first woman to sail the Pacific alone, going from Japan to California because she discovered sailing after the death of her husband. And in 1964, she had already become the first woman to sail solo from the mainland U.S., to Hawaii. So in a pretty short period of time, she just started racking up all of these 
records sailing back and forth across the Pacific alone. No yeah. big deal. And I mean, these women were not exactly using GPS systems. You no. know, this is this is back in the 50s and 60s. And I mean, I I I imagine like the quiet and the birds and the the water sounds. And I, I'm like, God, that would be so nice for like two hours. That would be really nice. And then my Scottish skin would just like turn purple and I would turn into like leather and shrivel up and just throw myself overboard. You would need a lot of benzedrine and rum. So, <laughs> maybe just the rum. Maybe just the rum. <laughs> maybe just the downers. But I think it's so interesting. Like these stories of perseverance through emotional turmoil from Beret Two women like Sharon Seitz Adams. Um, but then things start getting a little more competitive in the 70s. And it, apparently in 1978, women had sailing fever. Sailing fever. That's right. In June of 1978, Poland's Kristina Chanowska Liskowitz, who was a shipbuilding engineer and yachting sea captain. I hope she had a jaunty hat. She was the first woman to single-handedly circumnavigate the world. Single-handedly. That's the important part. She actually ended up getting dubbed the first lady of the oceans and was admitted to the very exclusive, gender exclusive Explorers Club. But obviously that wouldn't be for another couple of years, because as we discussed in a previous Explorer episode, it wasn't until 1981 that the Explorers Club even started letting women in. Yeah, I did a little digging on that, and I think it might have been the Polish chapter of the Explorers oh. Club. And I was surprised, too, that there wasn't more information or celebration regarding yeah. Liskowitz and her accomplishment. She's just sort of a footnote. Yeah. Even though it seems like a pretty huge accomplishment. And I don't yeah. know if it's simply because she wasn't American, so she didn't get quite as much fanfare. Yeah, I don't know. But Be- yeah, I mean, you would think because I feel like for a lot of these women who, you know, were the first at something or or did something the best, uh, there's usually like an interview or an article somewhere. Yeah. Why don't we know more about someone called the first lady of the oceans? Uh, because it seems like Naomi James, who completed a similar solo circumnavigation, say that five times fast, has received more historical attention. She was just narrowly beat by Liskowitz for that title, but she actually completed her trip 129 days faster, which is especially impressive considering that James had barely two years of training on a yacht before she was like, oh, hey, I'm just going to sail around the world alone. And for a little bit of comparison with men's sailing, women weren't terribly behind guys in doing these solo trips around the world. Uh, Robin Knox Johnson had become the first man to solo circumnavigate the globe in 1969. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I, I like hearing about people who just kind of, whether it's smart or not, just jump into something like this. I mean, after only two years of training, she's like, yeah, I'm going to do this cool. I'm just going to go like around the world and stuff. And do it really fast. On my boat. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I would need a lot of Benzedrine for that one. But more recently in 2012, Laura Decker became the youngest woman to sail around the world. And she set out when she was 14, completing the trip in two years. Yeah. uh, Listeners might be familiar with her name, uh, A, because there is a fantastic documentary about her trip called Maiden Trip, because she actually took a camera with her and filmed the entire thing. And it was incredible to watch her on the boat, taking care of things, fixing things, sailing through storms, and generally just being by herself. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine 
thinking back on when you were 14, 15 years old, spending that much time alone. I feel like there was, I was in a state of constant frenzy of wanting to be around other people and hang out with friends and all of that kind of social stuff, whereas she prefers that kind of solitary lifestyle. It takes a strong person to be alone that much and to, and to buck what is normal for your social group or your age group or whatever. But her name was also in the news before she even set sail because the Dutch government was so opposed to her even embarking on this trip that they initially took her away from her dad, who has sole custody of her. And I think she ended up having to legally like separate, emancipate herself mm-hmm. in order to do this. It was this like whole, wow. I mean, she was making national news the whole time. And you see in the documentary, this process of her and her dad having to deal with all of this unwanted media attention because genuinely all she wanted to do was sail around the world. Mm-hmm. She grew up on boats. Her dad all, worked on boats. All she wanted to do. All she wanted. <laughs> I mean, all a girl wants to do yeah. is take two years out of her life and sail around the world. But I mean, I think I think that's a great gift. I mean, maybe not sailing around the world, but I think that type of independence is a great gift that a parent can give to a daughter to let her do something on her own. Absolutely. That kind of ambition yeah. and bravery. Yeah. Because, I mean, she would even, uh, you know, at, at certain ports... Get off and, you know, hang out on land for a while and just explore on her own and meet people and talk to people. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even know if I, approaching 30, am brave enough to do that. At 16, I was just meeting friends. I was going by myself to Starbucks to meet friends. Yeah. Big move. Big move. I'll take a venti frappuccino. Thank you. <laughs> but next up, we want to dive in to the seas to talk about not just the women who have explored the oceans by sailing on top of them, but also the women who explored the sea by diving into its deepest depths. And we'll get into that when we come right back from a quick break. So far, we've talked a lot about, yes, Jean Beret was an explorer in the literal definition of the term. She was going out around the world doing science and research and all that stuff. But we've talked a lot about adventurers, too. People like young Laura Decker, who became the youngest woman to sail around the world. Now let's let's d- dive in, as Kristen said, to some more of these explorer STEM field types. Yeah, the women who are getting into the oceans in order to learn about how that aquatic world works. And just for a little bit of historical context, and this is coming from National Geographic, to understand what is leading up to these notable women in 1934, we have William Beebe being lowered into a tethered bathysphere mm. to over 3,000 feet into the ocean. And he and his partner, Otis Barton, pioneered manned exploration of the ocean. So this is in the mid-30s. This is when we're really starting to get into the depths. Right. And in 1943, this name should be familiar to you. Jacques Cousteau and his partner, engineer Emile Gagnon, modified a demand breathing regulator to engineer the aqualung, 
forever changing how people interact with the ocean. In other words, they made scuba diving possible. Yeah, and and so my uh, panic attack hyperventilation when I tried to go snuba diving in Mexico, which is like a combination of scuba and snorkeling, a total panic attack, because my brain, I have him to thank for it, because my brain was like, you're underwater. Did you not know you're underwater? You're not supposed to breathe? Panic attack. But anyway, speaking of Cousteau, because we're not here to just talk about these dudes as impressive as they are with their aqualung, we have to talk about Cousteau's wife, Simone Melchior Cousteau. So in 1937, she and Jacques get married, and she actually sold family jewels and furs initially to help fund uh, the Calypso, which was the famous ship that they sailed on. And she became known as the first lady of the ocean because of all of the incredible work that she did alongside Jacques Cousteau. For instance, she became the first woman scuba diver and played an essential role in the development of scuba diving technology, as well as basic undersea operations, because Hmm. she was helping test out the equipment, get dive into the ocean with it on. See what there was to see in the sea. Yeah, yeah, and and looking fabulously French while yeah. she did it with a with a little like short haircut and striped shirt with the boat neck. Yeah, I, I kind of want that to be my summer style. <laughs> I know, the Simone Chic. Um, well, so in 1963, she actually became the first aquanaut when she visited the Conshelf Two undersea habitat in the Red Sea. But I do want to mention, too, that there was a scandalous undercurrent to the Cousteau's relationship because, and this didn't come out until after Simone died, but almost the entire time, or at least for a good portion of their marriage, Jacques Cousteau had a secret family and he ended up marrying the woman that he had been, you know, having this long-term affair with and two children with mm-hmm. while he was married to Simone. He married this other woman after Simone died. But, I mean, it just seems like, I, I don't know, I wonder if she was, how could she not have been aware of that? And I think she just loved the exploration and life on the Calypso so much that perhaps that overshadowed any kind of... Uh, you know, relationship turmoils. I mean, maybe, maybe. I mean, after all, her son uh, with Cousteau, Jean-Michel, often said that she was the real captain of the Calypso and that she spent more time on Calypso than my father, brother, and myself combined. Yeah, and I hate that I didn't even know about her accomplishments Mm -mm. because everyone knows about Jacques Cousteau, but I don't think that that many people know about the important Simone. Yeah, that she yeah, that she was just as critical to these explorations as Jacques was. But if first lady of the ocean, Simone's moniker isn't impressive enough. Here we go. Let's take this radness up a notch with Sylvia Earle, known as her deepness. Yeah, we we mentioned Sylvia Earle in our first introductory episode and and talked about how her resume is incredible. Um, in 1970, Earl led the first team of women aquanauts, which I love that aquanauts, during the Tektite project. And she set a record for solo diving to a depth of 1000 meters. And now the the first Tektite project was all men. But then she was part of a follow up project that brought all women explorers down to the ocean. And that Tektite project in 1970 was the first NASA mission to include women and is still 
the only all-female NASA mission ever conducted. Right. And it's it's interesting, too, when you think about the context of, of when this was happening. I mean, this is this Tektite 2 project that Earl led was happening during a time when women were, you know, more entering the workforce. They were entering jobs that had traditionally been held by men. And so it was really showing that women scientists and explorers could do the same things that men could do and had a lot to contribute to the field as well. Yeah, and one of the engineers and assistant scientific director on that Tektite 2 all-female mission under the seas, Peggy Lucas Bond, said about that uh, expedition, quote, one of the things that is probably true to any minority group Ours was bound and determined to do everything better than the men could do. And she, from there, talked about how they completed more projects and tried to bring back more data than other projects had because this was the point in which they had to prove themselves. And it actually paved the way for other female aquanauts uh, to be regularly included in future missions and also paved the way for women's inclusion in NASA space missions. Yeah, exactly. You're you're either floating under the water or you're floating in space. Yeah, because this Tektite project was meant to help simulate how life in space would take place. Oh, and Peggy Lucas Bond also talked about the claustrophobia mm. aspect of living in that capsule underwater. Because it would be the same kind of thing if you're in, say, yep. the space station, you can't leave. Nope. No thanks. Brave women. No thank you. But I'm glad other women did it. I just have no desire. Well, and I, I thought Sylvia Earle's career lead up to becoming her deepness uh, resonates a lot with the other explorers that we've talked about because she was introduced to all of this through, guess what? Botany. Yeah. Studying algae for her thesis, of all things. Algae. Mm. Yeah. And uh, just for another career note, this was actually before Tektite 2. In 1968, she discovered undersea dunes off the coast of the Bahamas. That'd be nice. Wouldn't that be cool? I want to go there. Um, in 1979, she actually set the world untethered diving record. She descended 1,250 feet beneath the surface of the Pacific Ocean in one of these special diving suits that maintain a constant interior pressure uh, because, holy goodness, I cannot believe that she went so far down, just untethered. I, I with the panic attacks, like I'm feeling one coming on. I just, I can't. She's, she's so cool. Well, and for that, I think she got the name Her Deepness because she went so deep into the ocean. Um, and in 1990, she became the first woman to become the chief scientist of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which is pretty cool. And in 1994, she wrote a book called Sea Change, A Message of the Oceans, which is kind of considered the silent spring for the oceans. And then in 1998, which seems a little too uh, too recent for this to be a first. But in 1998, she became the National Geographic Society's first female explorer in residence. And she's still working. She's yeah. still doing stuff. Yeah. She's still diving and learning about the ocean and conservation and spreading the gospel thereof. 
Yeah, I saw a picture of her with her son. They were both in diving suits. And then I was thinking about pictures of, of the Cousteaus and their family. And I was like, can you imagine that that's your normal? Like, my parents worked for Delta Airlines, and that's my normal. And like other people, their parents are like teachers and firefighters and the office people. Like, but no, your, your parents were just like super awesome underwater explorers. That's normal. Well, it seems like with a lot of the seafaring women, there, there's usually a family tie mm-hmm. of either growing up on boats or around boats or by the water. Yeah. And, and I, one thing that I, I do wish as far as inspiration is concerned, like I, I do wish we knew more about what inspired those early women like Anne Bonnie to dress like men and go out on the oceans. I mean, I know that they, they loved these pirates and they, they wanted to have adventures for themselves, but it's like, oh, what? I, I just want to kind of get inside their brains. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and even today, I mean, there are so many women also in oceanography. There, there are many other women doing similar work to Sylvia Earle. There's even a website, womenoceanographers.org dedicated to highlighting all of the different career paths that water-loving women have taken. And, and it's similar uh, STEM-oriented jobs mm-hmm. that they're doing. Yeah, and I mean, in, in earlier episodes, we've we've hit on this over and over again that, you know, people are asking, what is left to explore? What is left to discover? And the answer is only that it's everything. You know, people who are, whether you're on top of the water discovering things or you're underneath the surface of the water discovering things. There's everything from microbes and habitats to the plant life, the animal life. I mean, everything in between. Well, and so much of this, too, deals with broader issues of climate change Mm -hmm. and its repercussions down to our day to day lives. So while it might seem rather exotic to, you know, have a job that involves scuba diving, it actually can have a trickle down impact into our day-to-day, (laughs) cubicle-bound existences. That's right. It can make us better podcasters. That's right. Indeed. Well, this wraps up the portion of our summer series really highlighting the women who are professional explorers and adventurers. And next up, to close things out, we're going to take a look at women who are just traveling on their own just to see the world today and what that's like. So in the meantime, we want to hear from you. Do we have any oceanographers, any marine biologists listening? Anyone who knows Sylvia Earle? <laughs> yeah. Her deepness. Are you listening? Let us know. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we have a couple of messages to share with you right now. So I've got a letter here from Summer in response to our episode on YA fiction. She writes, as a teacher in New Zealand, teaching students 13 to 18 years old, I try to make sure that I teach something new with at least one of my classes every year so that I don't get bored. I get to choose what I teach and can sometimes arrange for class sets of texts to be purchased if I want to teach something that we don't already have. I think the best part of my job is seeing young people excited about literature and choosing the right text for the class is so important. 
you touched on the need for greater diversity in fiction. And in New Zealand, this is represented by the need to have relevant New Zealand texts rather than relying on American and British fare, and specifically Maori and Polynesian stories. My recollection of New Zealand literature when I was in high school was not entirely positive. Either it wasn't relevant to me, or I often found it boring because New Zealand literature is characteristically dark. That's surprising. And I liked more optimistic fare at that stage of my life. Furthermore, as a Maori living in the suburbs of Auckland, I was somewhat disconnected from my heritage, and so-called Maori stories did not apply to me as they tended to be set in rural communities or in violent ganglands. That said, as the market grows, there are more of our stories being told, and the students I teach are less likely to experience cultural cringe than I did when I was in school. My favorites include *Guardian of the Dead* by Karen Healy, a supernatural thriller that contains elements of Maori mythology, and also *Rangatira* by Paula Morris, which is historical fiction based on real events. So, thanks for that insight, Summer. And fun fact: my brother is also a teacher in New Zealand. So,、hmm. hats off to you. I have a letter here from Melissa. She says, "I was so excited to listen to your Did World War II Really Help Rosie the Riveter podcast? For my master's thesis in history, I wrote about Millie Jeffrey, who was the first woman to head a department at the United Auto Workers. She ran the women's department from 1944 to 1949." One problem she encountered during the end of World War II was the disregard of women's special seniority that they accrued during the duration of the war. When men left their auto factory jobs to serve in the military, they continued to accrue seniority while the women who replaced them got special seniority. Women therefore wouldn't outrank returning veterans, but they would outrank men who had never worked in the factory. However, veterans who were new to the auto industry were hired over women workers who had more seniority than them when the war ended. Unfortunately, Millie and her colleagues got little help from their union and the auto companies on this matter. Ugh, I hate that story, but I love the story, and I, I'm glad you shared it. So thank you, Melissa, and thanks to everybody who shared their stories with us. MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is our email address, and for links to all of our social media outlets, blogs, videos, and every single one of our podcasts, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. On this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 